0: Uh, Just to draw your attention, today is the beginning of the 14 days of prayer through February 4th, and um, they're available at the back, prayer guides, Um, so I invite you to take one. Uh, If you want to follow online, you can follow online. Uh, There's a PDF. Um, Micah was gracious enough to put that up on the website for us, Uh, so you can pick one up, or you can print one or take one electronically at home from the PDF off the website. Uh, So they're just on the Welcome Center at the back, so I... I encourage you to pray along with us over these next couple of weeks as we seek to go before God and ask Him to work in the community and in our world at large. Um, Okay, I almost wanted to go with the kids. I understand Pastor Mark is dressing up this morning, so I wanted to see what he would look like. We should have had a camera down in their section, but anyhow, I don't know how many of you can think back i know for some of you it's a longer time than others but if you can think back to when you were a child either in school or perhaps in sunday school if you were privileged to attend and i don't know if your teacher ever had asked you i had to do this well, i got asked this a lot actually i was always asked to i was a fidgety kid so i was always asked you know to sit up straight and then we were supposed to sit up straight, and what was the next thing the teacher would ask us to do? She wants us to put on our thinking caps. How many people had to put on their thinking caps as a child? Okay. Did they still do that? Yeah, they still do? Put on your... Okay, so this morning I want you to put your thinking caps on for me, okay? And I'm going to read a couple of verses, four verses out of 1 Kings for you, and I want you to pick out a personality trait for me. Ready? 1 Kings 21, 1 through 4. You can pick out the personality trait you find here. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's, it's near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed, and he turned away his face, and he would not eat food. I don't know if it's a character trait, but what was, what was the King Ahab doing? You didn't put your thinking caps on, come on. Well, what was he doing? Sulking, pouting, right? He was pouting. What a terrible personality trait to demonstrate as a grown man. Jonah is often referred to as the pouting prophet. Now, now, pouting is bad enough in children. I, I mean, all of us who have had children know that. But what about pouting in a full-grown adult? Well, it's, it's downright childish. It's even embarrassing. Yet, so many of us still do this. We get so wrapped up in ourselves that we miss the bigger picture. And for a believer in Christ, and sadly, believers of all ages are guilty of this, they miss what God is doing. So when something isn't exactly the way you would like it, we can become pouty and manipulative, trying to exert pressure on others around us to get an outcome that we want or to change the behavior of someone around us. Pouting is simply a temper tantrum. It's brooding. And it has its roots in selfishness. And selfish behavior for a Christian is neither Christ-like, nor does it open up your eyes to what God is doing in the lives of those in and around you, and to what God is doing through them. Not to mention that one who pouts and broods, well, that's a sure sign of inflexibility. Now, there's one thing that in, in the various leadership roles I've had a privilege of being part of, I always encouraged people. And one of the traits that I highly valued was to remember for myself and encourage those around me to be flexible. Not every hill is worth dying on. If, if you drive a front-wheel car, You'll have axles that will take out through the drive shaft that give power to your wheels. And on each of those axles, there'll be a CV boot. Actually, there'll be two to each side. And, And once that becomes inflexible, well, it's a sign that the boot has become brittle. And it's likely already cracked and needs replacing. I was always desirous of not having to be replaced because I became inflexible. And I wasn't desirous of having to replace somebody on my team that had become inflexible. We're going to discover this morning that Jonah's pouting can take a person down a bad path and that you'll miss what God has in store for you. Jonah completely misses the SOS call from the sailors. He misses the opportunity to be a lighthouse in the storm because he's too busy pouting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your goodness. We thank you for your word and the the, the stories that are there, the historical stories that tell truth and convey messages to us down the centuries. Father, may we open our hearts to the truth. May we open our hearts to you working in our lives to make us more into the image of Jesus Christ. In your name we ask amen so before we pick up where we left off last week i believe it's important to to take a look back and and gather some context so jonah had been called to go and preach into the uh nation of assyria actually to the capital to Nineveh. so he was supposed to go on this journey of a thousand plus kilometers and jonah does it what god commanded him god says get up And Jonah got up. But at that point, Jonah decided to, rather than head north, northeast, he decided to head south, southwest. He goes in the opposite direction from which God had called him, down to the Mediterranean, to Joppa. There he buys a ticket to a place called Tarshish, some 4,800 kilometers somewhere along the southwestern coast of Spain. As we said last week, this would be the equivalent to us being commanded to take a walk to Old Quebec City and we decide to head off to the to the northwest territories. The exact opposite direction. So with his ticket in hand, Jonah heads down to the dock. He finds the boat and he goes down to the boat and he eventually makes his way down into the bowels of the ship. And after the voyage was underway, the Lord sent a howling storm that threatened the boat and all on board. Next, we find all the seasoned sailors on top of the deck. And they were in a, in a sense of panic and concern. And then they begin to cry out to their God, gods, small g, or in Hebrew, Elohim, In contrast, we we find below deck in the bowels of the boat, we find our land-loving friend Jonah. And it was there that he was fast asleep. The ship's captain comes down and he arouses him. he, He commands him to wake up and to call out to his God. Again, small g, which Jonah never does, by the way. Then with no answers from anybody's God, they decide to draw lots. And Jonah picks the short straw. Look with me starting in verse 8 of Jonah chapter 1. So if you haven't turned there, turn with me to Jonah chapter 1 starting in verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So he convinced that through the lot, that Jonah was the person to blame, they begin to pepper him with all these questions. And then Jonah declares, okay, I am a follower of the Lord. Jonah uses God's personal name here. He says, I'm a follower of Jehovah, the God of, and this time Elohim with a capital G, the God who created the sea and the dry land. And I want you to note the progression here. And it might easily be gone, um, go unnoticed as you look through chapter 1. If you go back to verse 5, they feared the storm. Now in verse 10, when they hear who caused the storm, they were exceedingly afraid of the storm and what was happening. And there's some irony here. Jonah claims to fear God, but no. Jonah is running, running from the presence of God. When you think about it, people still run from the presence of God today. Christians still run from the presence of God. Some do it physically and they just stop attending church altogether. They cut off all the ties with Christians around them. They're not interested in in having those relationships anymore. Others may move on from a particular church and start attending what we call a progressive church. That way they don't have to wrestle with the truth of Scripture anymore. It can conveniently be whatever they want to do it. While others don't physically leave the church, um, they, they'll, they'll just slip in and out of services, and their hearts really aren't in it. I'm not even sure why they continually come. Because they, they, they hear the service, they hear the sermon physically, but at the same time, they, they, they don't hear it. They don't want to be involved. They don't want to be involved because they've already started to flee from the presence of God. Well, Jonah was a hypocrite in the first degree. And soon Jonah was about to get what we'd call, he was about to get his pout on. Look with me to verse 11. Then Jonah said to, said to him, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more temptuous. So our Gentile sailors were unfamiliar with how to handle Jonah's God. Uh, perhaps if, if Jonah had been a murderer, uh, it would have been easier to come up for a solution, to come up with a solution for them. And and how to appease this new God, though, that they were puzzled at. Oh, they they probably had heard of the God of Israel. But to come to grasp with this fact that this God had tracked down Jonah would have been very different for them. How were we supposed to interact with this God that, that can track down a person so far out in sea? See, the, the storyline leads me to believe that they, were ju- they weren't just out of the harbor when this storm came upon them. But Jonah, but God had finally had enough with Jonah as the boat continued on its travels, and it was at that point that he found Jonah so far from home that he caused this great storm to come upon him. Look at verse 12. And he said to them, this is Jonah's answer, and they said, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So Jonah compl- completely understood. Hey, it's my fault. And if I wasn't here, y'all would be fine. As I read Jonah's words, a few things came to mind. Because Jonah's reaction is is still not what we expect. If you've ever corrected a child, adults can do this too, but children are good at this because they're very expressive. They don't try to hide their feelings. But when you go to correct your child, have you ever seen them set their jaw against you? They just kind of stiffen up. They don't want to do what you're asking them to do. I think that's what Scripture calls a a stiff neck because it's all these muscles in here that stiffens the jaw. And and that's, as I read this, that's what Jonah is doing. He's stiffening his jaw. He has a stiff neck at this point, and he's saying, he gets pouty, and he's saying, okay, pick me up and just hurl me into the sea. He really doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. The irony here, though, is that as a prophet of God, he, he should have known better. First, that he couldn't run from God, and and, and second, that God had set circumstances in such a manner that Jonah was to respond in repentance. That was to be the outcome. One would think that the prophet of Jonah would have understood this, that he would realize the truth that that Paul wrote so many years later. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 9.16. It's from the CSB. For if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast, because I am compelled to preach... Or you could say, because necessity has laid it upon me. And woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. But rather than do what God wanted him to do, the prophet was willing to be cast into a watery grave. See, I believe if Jonah had have repented right there and then, if he had have looked at the rest of the sailors and said, okay, it's my fault, repented to the Lord and looked at them and said, hey, Just take me to shore, drop me off at the nearest port, and I'll find my way back to Joppa and up to Nineveh. I think the storm would have ceased right then and it would have been over with. But rather than repenting, Jonah becomes very pouty. He becomes manipulative. He's even a little bit cowardly here. He implores the sailors to do the dirty work. He's drawing them into their disobedience. See, he could have jumped in himself if he really thought that was going to end the storm. But he wants to drag in the others. This is nothing that you would expect from a man of God. It leads us, can can Christians become this way? Can Christians become stiff-necked to the point of disobeying Christ and setting their jaw against God? as to say, I'm not going to do that, Lord. James Montgomery Boyce, in his book, The Minor Prophets, Volume 1, says this, Can a Christian become so hardened that he prefers death to what God wants him to do? I wish I could say no to that question. But unfortunately, the answer is yes. A Christian can become hardened. This is the course of sin. What begins easily with just a step to the west instead of a step step to the east soon accelerates into a maelstrom of self-destruction. Think back in Scripture to Lot and Lot's wife in Genesis. When, when she looked back, it wasn't just a, a glance over her shoulder. If you look at the words, look back, you'll find that they mean to regard with, to pay attention. As one commentator stated, the Scriptures don't say whether her death was a punishment for valuing her old life so much that she hesitated in obeying, or if it was a simple consequence for her reluctance to leave her life quickly. Either she identified too much with the city and joined it, or she neglected to fully obey God's warning, and she died. And unexpectedly, this is where Jonah finds himself. It's it's his fault. But his solution is anything but godly. And, and I love the reaction of the sailors. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. I love that. Nevertheless. So they listen to Jonah and it's like, okay, next idea. I mean, they didn't want to do it either. And that word for road could be translated dig i I don't know if you've ever we have any canoeists here or kayak people anybody done white water a few people yeah okay if you've done white water if you have to ever go up a stream against a fast current you have to dig in to move that and that's the exact word that they use here they were digging in now They they must have either been able to see the shore or they knew they were going along the coast so they knew the shoreline was in that direction. But they tried. They began to dug in and they rowed. And they rowed towards shore all with the hopes of not having to throw Jonah overboard. The story here drips with irony. Why? Gentile sailors... Not followers of of Yahweh care more for life, more for Jonah's life than he does. Now, uh, the story also drips more irony in the fact that, and, and this is a bit of a spoiler alert here, that Jonah was sent to preach to save the lives of the Ninevites, and he runs. Rather than see one life perish, these Gentile sailors desperately, desperately try to row ashore, but to no avail. Jonah was willing to see all the lives of Nineveh perish. These men worked hard to save one. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry. Worked hard to, just to save the one life. My notes are out of order. Sorry. Jonah 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now, we talked about this earlier. I want you to remember back to verse 8. Whenever the sailors referenced God... Whether they're gods that they cried out to or they referenced Jonah's God, it was always with a small g. It was always recorded for us with the generic term of Elohim. The the Gentile sailors appear to have gone underneath some sort of transformation because now when they cry out to the Lord God, they are using the proper name of God. They're crying out to Jehovah, and the writer wants us to understand this, that they are addressing Jehovah, not with a generic term, but with the personal name of God, the God of Israel. See, knowing that as Jonah could not run and hide from the presence of God, the sailors became aware that they could not row to shore against God. And it's here we find the sailors. Not the prophet, but we find the sailors Going to Jehovah in prayer. And there's three parts to their prayer. The first part is they ask for their lives. And they ask not to be held accountable for Jonah's sin. The second part of the prayer is they don't want to be held accountable or responsible for Jonah's life. He had done nothing to them. They don't know what he'd done against God. They just didn't want to be responsible for it. And the third part of the prayer was a recognition of God's sovereignty, that the storm was attributed to God and for His reasons only. Then the prayer concluded, and the prayer concluded with a splash. Look at verse 15. Right to the end, Jonah remains both selfish and manipulative. So they picked up Jonah. He could have jumped, but they picked him up and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. There are always stories that you hear and occasions that you might hear of or you read where you wish you could be that proverbial fly on the wall. Or in this case, the dragonfly in the deck. Because I had just imagine the scene. Have you ever been to a wave pool? How many have done those wave pools? Uh, surely there's more over 60 that have done those. But anyhow, you go to the wave pool and it's just a rock and a wave, And then after a little while, someone throws a switch. And within a few minutes, it calms right down. And you would never know that just five minutes before, that pool was being shook and rocked by waves. Well, that's what it was like as the sailors looked out. It began to calm down as soon as Jonah hit the water. I also picture a moment of reflection for the sailors. I I wish I could witness their faces as the sea calmed once Jonah hit that water. See, one commentator stated this way, so far as the sailors knew, Jonah had been dealt with by his angry God and master. Even had they seen him swallowed by the fish, which is highly improbable, and not suggested by the story, they would have never guessed that it was the instrument of God's mercy. All they knew is they threw Jonah overboard and the water calmed down. And I could only imagine what they thought. It seems like this that you read in scripture that causes some to begin to declare that God is abusive. Proclaiming, how can you believe in a God that would cast his servant in the sea? Don't, let a, don't allow people to twist Scripture. God did not cause Jonah to be thrown into the Mediterranean. That was Jonah's choice to continue in disobedience. It was his choice not to obey, and sin has consequences. That was the reason Jonah's mission to Nineveh. He was to go to Nineveh because sin has consequences and the Ninevites needed to be made aware of this. And the simple truth is we live in a culture that doesn't accept consequences for sin. Much less they don't recognize sin itself. When people bring up such objections, they often are trying to come to grips with truths that that appear paradoxical, first God is love. First John four eight. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. See that verse is not proclaiming God loves; it's stating God is love. God is the ultimate source of love. God's character is the essence of love. It's what. It's love that sent Christ to the cross, and it's love that has sent and commissioned Jonah to go preach. But at the same time, while God is love, God is holy. And holiness is the antithesis to sin. Isaiah 6 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. God is is sickened by sin. Psalm 5, 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And as Isaiah informs us, sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But not only does sin separate us, sin also destroys us. And it comes at a great, great cost. Romans 6.23, just the first part, for the wages of sin is death. So sin separates, sin destroys. As I look around in our world, I don't know how much more evidence they need to witness before they begin to believe that God's way is best. God's desire all along has been to to want to be in relationship with His creation. Right from the start, from the beginning, which, which we call the fall, when Eve and Adam sinned, God had a plan. Animal sacrifices pointed to the ultimate sacrifice that God would send Jesus Christ to take upon Him the sin of the world. And for all who received Him... Well, look at the last half, or listen to the last half of Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, a, a holy God demands payment. If God didn't require payment for sin, would he be holy? Would you and I understand the seriousness of, seriousness of sin if God just went, oh, and let us everybody off the hook? 1 John 4.10 states this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What a wonderful truth. That while God hates sin, He provided a way. A propitiation is just a fancy word to say that Jesus was the appeasement for God's wrath. He was the payment that brings us from death into new life. See, Jonah had an option. Jonah had a choice. He could have repented. He knew sin had consequences for the believer and for the unbeliever. And unlike our culture, as this played out, none of the sailors were bothered by this. It didn't bother the sailors one bit. Nobody in the group exclaimed, wow, what a nasty God that prophet served. No. They had been eyewitnesses to the power of the one true God. And look at their response in verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's focus on that first phrase. Then the men feared, which can mean revere, um, stand in awe of, this time, the fear and awe was directed right at the Lord who had caused the storm, and, and that fear was exceedingly large it didn 't cause the sailors to run it didn 't cause them to begin to cower, and, and nowhere were they instructed to sacrifice. you just don 't find that in the scripture, but they begin to offer a free will offering of sorts, a re- recognition of god 's awesomeness of his mercy as psalm 33 5 says he loves righteousness and justice the earth is full of the steadfast love of the lord most theologians believe at this point there's an indication from the wording and, and, and the way it's written that these sailors came to a saving faith in jehovah well they very well may have it, it fits in with all the contrasts that we see in the first chapter as the writer presents Jonah to us. And and let's let's review some of those contrasts that we have come across so far. See, we have the Gentile sailors. They call out to their God. The the captain requests Jonah to call out to his God, but he doesn't. The sailors attempt to save Jonah. Well, Well, Jonah is fleeing so that the Gentile lives... In Nineveh, won't be saved. By the end, the sailors fear the Lord Jehovah. Well, Jonah gives lip service to this. There's no evidence in his life that he fears the Lord. And, and the sailors offer up sacrifices and vows to the Lord. Sorry, this is another plot giveaway if you haven't read it, but Jonah will promise to give vows and sacrifices. But as you read through the narrative, there is no such record that he ever does. In the Department of Vows and Sacrifices, Jonah is all talk and no action. See, throughout the storm, the sailors are signaling, SOS, we need help, save our souls. And Jonah is so preoccupied with himself that in his pouting, he completely misses an opportunity to meet the needs of the sailors. See, Jonah is belly button watching. He's belly button watching through this whole voyage. Worse than that is the fact that again and again, it's the Gentile unbelieving sailors who shine and put him to shame. See, Jonah was called to serve the people of the Ninevites. Today, you and I are called to serve the people of Lambton Shores of southwestern Ontario We're called to serve our neighbors and our relatives. You and I, like Jonah, carry a message of salvation. Jonah missed everything that God was doing. He missed the privilege of being part of the story of hope for those sailors, of being used by God. Jonah was too busy pouting, having his little temper tantrum, brooding. Jonah was far too busy belly button watching, and he was inflexible. And I get their harsh words, but they're words that you and I need to hear over and over again throughout our lives. Because Some of us are willing to die on way too many hills. We become set in our ways, and we don't become set in God's ways. We've made tradition and preferences the law. We lack humility and grace. After how many years of life that God has granted us, many still have not learned not everyone's going to be like you. Oh, we give lip service to it. But do we live it out? See, our world has dramatically changed. This is not the Canada that I grew up in. And some of the changes, some of the changes, recognizing the way that the nation has mistreated people, have been good. Creating a medical system that treats the needs not based on one's wallet size, I think, was good. But there have been some very evil cultural shifts in Canada. See, on one hand, we say we want to protect children, but we also use them as social experiments catering to adult desires. The educational system is strife with politics, and higher education now teaches theories a century ago we sent men off to war to fight to defeat. The Canada I grew up in, 40-50% to 50% of the kids I went to school with went to church. By the time my kids went to school, there were a handful, maybe three or four families. And I don't say any of this to discourage you. It may sound that way, but that's not why I'm saying it. I'd rather want to encourage you. More than ever, Canada needs people who love God and show God's love to others. Our neighbors don't need people who pout. Our neighbors don't need people who think, wow, the past was way better. They need neighbors who are willing to take the message of hope. And, and don't assume your neighbors know very much about the Bible. Oh, they think they do, and they think they're funny with their memes on social media, but they know very little of the Bible. Sadly, biblical illiteracy in our our nation and in our churches is very, very high. You and I need to equip ourselves to answer the call to the world around us. Our world needs a neighbor who has the good news of Jesus Christ and is willing to share it with them. And when you share with your neighbor you're likely sharing around the world. I think that as I share with my neighbors, I have people from all countries around the world. And if you reach a neighbor that is from another place, it's likely they have relatives here, there, and and the message of hope and of Christ moves to different parts of the world as you begin to share. And I'm sure your neighborhoods here on the shores of Lake Huron are not that much different than what I have in London. See, the invitation here is for you and I to take the, our eyes off ourselves and be part of God's story, of what God is writing, of God, what God is doing. And the invitation is to enter into that, not kicking and screaming as Jonah was. To allow God to work in us, not despite us. And that will grant us the, the wisdom to know the difference I don't think most people want to be known as pouting people, but I rather think we want to be known as holy people, full of love and full of grace. And we have a world that needs both love and grace and the message of hope. I want you to bow your heads this morning. I want you to think of Jonah and all that had happened. And I want you to think of the fact that God stands before you and there's an invitation to be part of His story. To go into all the world and to share the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Some will be called overseas. Some will be called right here. But whether you're a missionary across the water and you're to take the message of hope, It's no different for those of us that are behind in North America and Lambton Shores. Our mission field is across the street and around the corner. And again, the invitation is for you and I to enter that mission field with the message of the hope of Jesus Christ, that which we can find and that which we can offer others to say, Christ died on a cross for you. I pray that you'll think of how you can be involved here at Forest and in your neighborhood to take that message of repentance and love. Father, we thank you this morning for the words. Thank you for the story of Jonah. Thank you that it was left for us and for the contrast and all that we see there. And Father, while our country and our, our, our neighborhoods are not what they were 50, 60 years ago, they are full of people full of people that need to hear the message of the gospel, full of people that don't even understand that there's a God that had sent his son to die on a cross for them. As they look for ways to try to, to get rid of their sin and to clean up their lives and to enjoy their lives. Father, may we at Forest Baptist be a, a lighthouse collectively as a church and individually as people. Father, that you'll give us the privilege to be part of your story of reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing them respond. Father, we thank you for all the ministries of the church here. Father, this morning I ask that you'll work on hearts, Open people's minds to how they might serve you and enter into this great story of salvation by sharing the messages you have asked us to do. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.